Welcome to Redeemer's Church Weekly Message Podcast, where our mission is simple. We are a church that is passionate about loving God and loving people. And now, we hope you enjoyed this week's message by Pastor Caleb Schaefer. Over the last two weeks, we've been talking about, uh, or we've been taking a look at what Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. And I got to be honest that out of everything that we share from scripture, things that are topical and different books, I get excited so much just about talking about Jesus and focusing on him. But we've been taking a look at what Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. And the reason why we've been doing that is we've been looking at this Roman centurion soldier who was standing there watching everything that was happening, listening to what Jesus said. And we've been examining this scene because we have been considering what would it have been that would have compelled and convinced this Roman centurion to say, truly, this is the Son of God. And, and, and before we get into those reasons, we need to first be reminded that this was God's heart and why he would have had Jesus die this way. In John chapter 12, verse 32, it's one of my most favorite scriptures. Jesus speaks of himself. He said, if I would be lifted up from the earth, lifted up, that's, he's talking about the cross now. At that time, no one knew what that meant, but he knew. If I would be lifted up, hanging from a cross on the earth, I would draw all men to myself, all men, every single person. Okay, whether, whether you're streaming online or you're in this room and you think that God would not be drawing you, why did you even show up this morning? You think that it might have been someone in, someone's invitation or maybe you just come every single week. Well, guess what? It's actually God drawing you. It's drawing you because he loves you. And we see that Jesus is drawing everyone to himself at the cross. And remember, he was not drawing them to himself because of some sort of massive ego. It was not for that reason. He was drawing them that they might discover the overwhelming sacrificial love of God that was being put on display as he was hanging from the cross. So then what is it that the centurion would have heard that would have convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. Well, last week we talked about two things. The first is that he would have heard, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And we talked about how this phrase expressed the mercy that God has towards humanity. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was a statement a prayer of mercy. By the way, it's interesting because this demonstration really impacted the disciples later after Jesus ascended into heaven. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, love your enemies. Thank you, Phil. And pray for those who persecute you. Was this not a prayer from the cross? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, why, why is it that I would say this impacted the disciples later on? Because when Stephen is being stoned, what does Stephen say in Acts? Father, do not hold this against them. 
When Peter in Acts 2 is preaching to the multitudes, he says, it was for your ignorance that you put him on the cross. And I do not hold that against you. This statement from the cross in Jesus' most suffer, moment of suffering impacted the future of the church. It's amazing. And this, this, this statement of mercy expresses this, and mercy is, is often defined as this. This prayer was, God, don't give them what they do deserve. That's what mercy is. Every one of us deserves certain things. But when Jesus was saying this, he was saying, God, don't give them what they do deserve. Don't give them that. I know they deserve it, but don't give them to it. And by the way, I need to add something uh, to this, this point that I didn't get to share last week. And I really believe that it is just relevant. I feel like God just put it on my heart for us all. But this is the, the point that I want to make. Forgiveness never happens without mercy. Forgiveness never happens without mercy. How many of you know that we live in a time of canceling people and never letting go of offenses, never letting go of resentment or bitterness towards people that, are, that have hurt you. We cancel them, we cut them off, we delete their phone numbers from our phones, and we just say, you're done, I'm finished. Forgiveness never happens without mercy. Where there is no mercy, there cannot be forgiveness, because in order for you to forgive someone, you have to forego or let go of your right to inflict justifiable pain, punishment, or justice upon the person. It never happens without mercy. You have to be willing to let go of what you could inflict justifiably. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he could only say that because he had already made up his mind to extend mercy. The mercy came before the forgiveness. Which brings me to my next question. How could Jesus say that? How could he come to the point in the midst of his suffering to say, forgive them for they know not what they do? Because of what he said after, Father, forgive them. Now this is something that I, I, I know some people could raise questions. They could be like, what do you mean? Uh, if you have any questions, email bcoolich at usa.net because I'm sure that email address will promptly respond and give you a very, very good answer. How he was able to say, Father, forgive them, because of what he said after that, for they know not what they do. I want you to think about this. Jesus extended mercy because he presumed ignorance. Romans chapter, Jesus extended mercy because of, he presumed ignorance. Listen to me this morning because I really want you to hear this. Jesus extended mercy because he knew that they didn't know what he knew, nor did he expect them to know it. This is so important. The reason why there is more judging than there is mercy is because we assume that the people we judge know what we know and, and would do what we do. So Jesus is hanging there and says, forgive them. How? Because I know that they don't know what they're doing. He was able to give mercy because he never made the assumption that they would do what he did or they knew what he knew. We judge because we assume that someone should know better. 
But that is not what Jesus did from the cross. Think about this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they just don't know better. There have been times where I have judged my kids and I have held them to expectations of how they should behave at six based upon who I am at 38. I lied about my age. I'm 39. I'm about to be 40. I'm just not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dealing with it well. It just, it just slipped. <laughs> Phil, did you assume ignorance there? Or? Okay, just, just wanted to see if you're practicing what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but my wife will look at me and she'll be like, um, they're six. Like, you're not giving them anything. You're expecting too much out of them. What's the point? The point is that when I expect omniscience, which is knowing everything from people instead of ignorance, I extend judgment instead of mercy. We get so frustrated and mad at people and they're like, they're so stupid. Do they know everything? No, the only reason why you're frustrated is because you expect them to know what you know and do what you would do. Judgment instead of mercy. But look at what Jesus modeled from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what I know, nor do I expect that they would do what I do. It's the capacity. It's what caused him to be able to do it. You know how scripture says in Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness of God that leads toward repentance. That's what Jesus was modeling here. You ever know what that kindness is? It's choosing this is so good and important. It's choosing to forgive someone before the person ever recognizes their own need to repent. That's what Jesus was. He was preemptive in his forgiveness. He was not waiting for them to come to repentance in order for him to forgive. He was forgiving before they would ever recognize their own need to repent. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, the crazy thing is that some people would have been standing around hearing what he had said, thinking to themselves, who is he even talking to? Not even realizing yet that he was talking to them. They didn't even know they needed to repent, but he was extending the forgiveness. And yet we see two people, a centurion and a criminal hanging next to him, Soon after that statement, recognizing their need to repent. Why did that happen and how? Here's how. Because forgiveness is the seed you sow that God uses to cultivate repentance in the other person. You're, wanting, you're praying that God would, would cause someone to repent and you've not even sown a seed for it. What if he's waiting on you to sow a seed of forgiveness before they're recognizing their need to repent in order to actually produce the repentance in them? Because it's the kindness of God that leads toward repentance. Maybe he's waiting on you and he's not going to answer your prayer because you're the answer to the prayer. See, this is hard, isn't it? Because no, 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 no. They owe me something. They did this and they did that. Maybe he's waiting on you to model what he did from the cross in preemptive mercy and preemptive forgiveness as a seed sown 
to produce repentance later. We're waiting. So, listen, here's what happens when you sow the seed of forgiveness. It not only releases you, but God will use your forgiveness to shift the heart of the other person. And it's hard because we want to hold on. And until I get what I'm due, then and only then will I forgive. But let me tell you, I had a moment several years ago where God totally dealt with my heart in this area. I was holding on to some resentment, some offense, some unforgiveness towards an individual. And I don't want to expose this person but uh, because I'm friends with them on Facebook. But their name rhymes with, I'm totally kidding. What are you <laughs> <laughs> You're like, who is, he, who is he talking about? <laughs> That's so funny. But I remember I was reading um, probably the most unread book of the Bible, Philemon. Y'all don't even know where it's at. <laughs> Kidding. It's a letter from Paul, right? And I'm reading this letter. And in this letter, it's, so, it's, it's such an interesting letter. It's a short letter. So if you feel like, you know, you want to just say, like, I read a book today. Go ahead and read Philemon because it's like, it's a 10-minute read. But I'm, I'm reading it. And the story of Philemon is this. Is Philemon is someone who believes in Jesus he lives, I believe, in Ephesus or somewhere. But at this time, and we know this, at this time in that cultural context, a lot of people had indentured servants or they had slaves. And so Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus does not believe in Jesus. Onesimus runs away from Philemon. He, he, he runs away from him to gain his freedom. Now, interestingly enough, he runs to Paul. Because he's like, you have influence in Philemon's life. If something, if he's going to try to kill me, I'm just going to leverage your influence in his life to spare my own life. So Onesimus goes there. Paul leads him to Jesus. And Philemon is Paul's letter back to Philemon about how you're supposed to treat this slave that ran away from you. And he said this, he's, and, and this is what convicted me in the moment. He said, you, I am sending Onesimus back to him but you are to treat him like a brother and not a slave. Power. Because guess what? When he was with me, he gave himself to Christ, and he's no longer your slave. He's now your brother. you got to change the way you deal with him. And I'm reading this, and the Holy Spirit's like, (laughs) I set you up because all that offense, bitterness, resentment, anger that you have towards that person, now what are you going to do with it? Because I was waiting on repentance and so guess what he's like you need to take them out and you actually need to apologize to them and ask for their forgiveness because you were harboring offense bitterness and resentment even though it was justifiable so I go out to breakfast And I said, I want to apologize because of this, 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 and this. And I left. But what was Jesus doing? Listen, Jesus was trying to teach me that forgiveness is what you give someone before that person ever recognizes their need to repent. It's what you extend that way. So the centurion would have received or heard the mercy of God and Father forgive them for they know not what they do, but he would have also heard the grace of God, 
when Jesus turned to the criminal and said, today you will be with me in paradise. See, where mercy is getting what you, is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And Jesus' promise to allow the criminal on the cross to enter into paradise with him that day communicated to the centurion the grace of God. So what else would have the centurion heard? What else would he have witnessed as he's watching Jesus? Now remember, this is a, someone, this is a shift on his schedule as a soldier. He is assigned to watch the crucifixion take place. He's not allowed to end his shift until the person breathes their last breath. So what else would have this centurion heard and seen? Three additional things quickly. Number one, in John 19, 26, and 27, he would have seen this. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her, took her into his home. I was reading this, and I talked to Gary Larson again, and he said that this did, in fact, take place. And there's record from, I think, like early uh, apostles or disciples post after the, the scripture was written that Mary actually did go with John, and I believe John, it, it was to Ephesus or something, and she was actually buried in Ephesus. So that point, from, from that point on, when Jesus said that, John literally took ownership of what Jesus said from the cross. Now, what would this have communicated to the centurion? The selfless compassion of God. The selfless compassion of God. The country of Israel, north to south, is only 290 miles long. That's about 50 miles longer than the state of Ohio, north to south. But listen to this. Scholars have determined that Jesus crossed that 290 miles up to 3,000 miles in three years. That's a lot of going back and forth. I'd like to suggest to you the reason why was because he was moved by compassion. Compassion is what would compel his movement to wherever he would go. Scripture tells us over and over and over again that Jesus was moved by compassion. In the original language, I love what this word compassion is. It is a gnawing agitation in the inmost parts. It's like when you are, you happen to be going somewhere and you see someone in need and you drive by, but you get hit with that, I have to turn around. It's that I have to do something. It's this inward agitation in the, in the inside of Jesus. So what that literally means is that you, when you see people in pain, suffering, lost and without truth, Jesus would be eaten up from the inside about it. It was his obsession to do something about it. And so Jesus would be moved by compassion. And in this moment, Jesus is hanging from the cross. Jesus was still being moved by compassion in his suffering. He's in agony, and yet he is consumed by a compassion to make sure that his mom is taken care of. I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain and suffering, I talked about it a couple weeks ago, I like to suffer in silence. But I have also found this about suffering. When you're in pain and agony, it is easy to become blind to the pain and suffering of other people. 
Because when you're going through something, it can become all-consuming. How many of you have ever been in that point where you just become blind to, to the pain and suffering going on in other people because you're in pain? And it's just like you don't even get around to asking what's going on in other people. Asking. You, it's like you just become numb. Well, this is Jesus. Jesus is from the cross in his most agonizing point. But look at Jesus. Only Jesus can be in the worst pain you or I could ever experience, but be more mindful in the moment of the pain of someone else rather than his own. He's seeing his mother in tears. And remember that Jesus cannot speak until he pulls himself up on the nails pierced in his hands to get oxygen to be able to communicate. And he sees his mom in tears and his mom in agony. And in the middle of his pain and suffering, we see the selfless compassion of God on display by pulling himself up and saying, John, take care of her. And mom, he didn't even say mom. You know why? Because it would have been absolutely agonizing for her to hear that. So he says, woman. Woman, take, here's your son. Son, take care of your mom. It's the selfless compassion of God. See, the centurion would have heard that. You see, true compassion is an inward agitation that causes you to overlook your own suffering, to sympathize with those that are hurting. And it's rare these days because everybody is in pain. But not everybody is in pain, is able to overlook their own suffering, to see the pain in somebody else. And what it does is it cultivates a self-preservation where all we care about ourselves, I only, I'm, I'm, I'm out here surviving, I really don't care about what happens to you. But what does Romans say? Romans says in Romans 12, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And in this, you fulfill the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens. And Jesus is in the most agonizing moment with the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's pulling himself up to take care of his mom because he was able to overlook his own pain. That is selfless compassion. The second thing that, that this centurion would have seen and heard is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's recorded in Matthew 27, 46. And he would have also heard this. In John 19, 28, I am thirsty. Both of these statements by Jesus would have communicated the humanity of God. We know Jesus was divine, but we also know that God in his omniscience chose to put his divine son in human flesh. There's something incredibly comforting to me when I know someone who just knows where I am coming from because their life experience was very similar to mine. There's something just comforting about knowing that someone understands you because they've gone through what you've gone through. There was a, um, the other day uh, uh, on Facebook, a, a guy that I grew up in, in, the, in Roswell, the neighborhood at Roswell, was just reminiscing. He was driving around and seeing these different like street signs and talking about all these different things. And this one guy who's ultra, also a mutual friend of mine commented, said, man, those were the days. And he goes, he goes, wait, you lived over here? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, that's why you and I both are friends with Caleb Schaefer on Facebook. 
Like we knew each other, but we didn't know that we knew each other. And, and it was just, there was something comforting in the moment as we're reminiscing, like, here's somebody that understands, like, we, we grew up in the same area. It's comforting to you to know that someone has gone through what you've gone through, face what you face. Isn't it comforting that we do not serve a God that doesn't know what we've been through because he's been through it? There's something amazing about these statements, the humanity of God. Anybody have a friend that just gets you, like they understand who you are, how you think, where you are coming from. This is Jesus. Jesus understands what it's like to be human because he's walked in our shoes. And Hebrews 4.15 talks about this, speaking of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet was without Sin. You know what that word sympathize there is? I love this. It is suffer what you suffer and feel what you feel. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who cannot, who does not know what it's like to suffer what we suffer and feel what we feel. One has been tempted in all things as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was born. Jesus was tired. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tempted, he was mad. Jesus had scars and so did his resurrected body. Jesus wept, Jesus died, he experienced everything that it is to be human so that we could be comforted by the truth that we do not serve a God that has never suffered what we suffer or feel what we have felt, but we serve a God who has walked in our shoes and knows exactly what we go through. This is what we see when Jesus says, I'm thirsty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, and not only that, but Jesus, and this is important, Jesus knows what it is like to live separated from God. He doesn't just know what it's like to be human, but he also knows what it's like to live separated from God. That's what that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was all about. This is the only moment in Jesus' life where he could no longer see the face of God, sense his presence, hear his voice, or know what to do. And I asked Gary Larson about this again, and he said that this moment of Jesus hanging there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was the moment where Jesus truly experienced hell on earth. Because we know according to the, the theology of hell or what the Bible says about hell, hell is the total absence of who? God. So here he is, totally separated, and it's shocking to his system. Wait a minute, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to do. And matter of fact, I believe as I read this story being played out, that this was what motivated Jesus to finish the work. It motivated Jesus to finish the work because he, it was, I believe at this point, he truly felt what it was like to be human and separated from God. It is what caused him to say, I'm going to finish this because this gap needs to be bridged because it is inhuman for humans to not live in connection with God. And I'm going to make this happen. I believe it was the motivating force for him to finish 
the work. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the way, isn't it, you would think, terrible that this is the most painful moment of Jesus' life, and now he does not have the strength of leaning into his Father to get through it. Why have you forsaken you, me? You've left me behind in my most painful moment. See, Jesus thought life was painful in and of itself until he experienced what life was like without God. And by the way, I want you to take note of the fact that this moment where Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? It's his understanding. He came to that understanding because he lived in absolute connection with God all the time. So I want you to understand something. That if you don't have a personal relationship with God, and you're walking the earth, and you don't think you need it, you just haven't even realized how important it is to live in connection with God. Because it's often not until you actually experience that connection that you realize what you were missing. Jesus lived in it his whole life, and then he didn't have it anymore, and he said, whoa, this is totally different. The humanity of God, and if I could have the the worship team come forward. Jesus chose to subject himself to experiencing life in his most painful moment without connection to God so that we would know that there is a God that has truly experienced everything there is to being human. I thirst, why have you forsaken me, express the humanity of God. And lastly, and this is where we close, in Luke 23, 46 is my favorite. In Luke 23, 46, it says that, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What would this moment cause the centurion to understand? Number three, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. And let me tell you what I believe is the reason. It doesn't have to do with the fact that Jesus said, Father, because any lunatic could do that. Anybody kind of like semi-hallucinated when you're in pain? <laughs> you know what that's like. If you ever have the flu and you just have those like flu crazy dreams, or you're like, this is just totally weird. Anybody could have done that. But it was something different here. See, one thing is promised for every one of us. We will all die. We just don't know when. Can, it, can we all agree? We don't know when we're going to die. It's promised, though. We will die one day. The book of James says that life is a vapor that appears and then just vanishes. And this was all too true about another person that claimed to be the Son of God, that is, the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar. There was three Caesars up until the time Jesus died. There was Julius Caesar, his adopted son Augustus, and then Augustus had a son Tiberius, and I talked about Tiberius in week one, but I'm going to talk about Julius Caesar because he was the OG in the Roman culture who claimed divinity. I'm the Son of God. This is what he was known as. Julius Caesar was the original son of God in Roman culture, but Caesar was assassinated on March 15th in 44 BC. 
He was heading to a Senate meeting, having no idea that what was awaiting his arrival was a group of senators that would assassinate him. Now, prior to his assassination, because of his claim being the son of God, he was worshipped as a god. Temples were built. I've been to Rome with my wife. I've seen the temples dedicated to, to Caesar. He had a religious cult following where people would, would, would just worship him and venerate him. But of course, on March 15th and 44 BC, this Roman son of God was murdered on a day that he did not know would be his last. Seventy years later, a Roman centurion is standing before another son of God. This one just happens to be Jewish. This one's claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised king of Israel. He's claiming to be the son of God, just like Julius Caesar was claiming to be the son of God. The irony of it all is that this Jewish son of God is kind of being murdered too. He's been condemned to death by those that knew him. In fact, some of those that declared Hosanna, it's highly likely that in his arrival into Jerusalem, declaring, Hosanna, our Savior has come, were also the ones at his arrest that would say, crucify him. These people, some of them that crucified Jesus, knew who Jesus was. Same way with Julius Caesar. So you can imagine in this Roman centurion's mind, this son of God hanging from the cross is just like the other Julius Caesar. How ironic. Both claiming to be the son of God and they can't even save themselves. Another one claiming to be the son of God being murdered. Except with Jesus, there was something different from Caesar. Listen to me this morning. No matter Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, he could do nothing to prevent his own death, and neither did Caesar. But there was something totally different about the way that Jesus died. In Luke 23, 46, as we read earlier, it says that the centurion hears Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last, and we see the centurion's reaction in Mark 15, 39, it says this. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, notice this, saw the way he breathed his last breath, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus was not fighting for another breath. Jesus was not struggling to stay alive. What was it about Jesus' last breath that convinced the centurion that he was the son of God? Listen to me. Jesus' last breath was not something that was taken from him. It was something that he gave. Jesus determined what his last breath was. Caesar couldn't. Two sons of God to making the claim, but there's something powerful. Only God can say, into your hands I commit my spirit, and one more breath and I'm out of here. That in and of itself is so, so 
powerful. But when the centurion saw that Jesus' breath wasn't taken from him, it was something that Jesus determined was his last. It was at this moment that centurion could no longer deny that Jesus was the Son of God. Because listen, there is no way for someone to look up towards heaven and say, into your hands I commit my spirit and then breathe one time and you're out of here. Only God can do that. And if you don't think that that is profound in and of itself, I want you to hear what Jesus said months, maybe even years before this moment. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 18. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the power to lay it down when I want to and also take it up again, for this is the authority that my Father has commanded. Julius Caesar did not have the power over his own life, but Jesus did. No one takes my life. I lay it down when I want to, and I pick it back up when I want to. That is the most gangster statement I've ever heard in history. For someone to say that, you don't take my life. You think you can, but let it be known that every other person who is crucified on a cross before me and after me, none of them can give up their life. You all take it from them. But I'm the only one throughout history to determine when my last breath will be. And matter of fact, I'm not going to fight to stay alive, just like Caesar being stabbed multiple times. Every last breath was him uttering something or gasping for air. But Jesus was like, no, this is the last one, and I'm out of here. Power. No one can take my life. I lay it down voluntarily. Look at what Jesus has done, as the song said earlier. What he's done. What he's done, all the glory and the honor to the Son, my sins are forgiven, my future is heaven, I praise God for what he's done. And here's the amazing thing about it, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus waited till every single prophecy that was spoken about him decades and centuries before he was ever coming to the earth was totally fulfilled. And then he was like, well, I guess it's time to go. Only God. Only God can do that. And it was Jesus breathing his last breath at that moment. And by the way, all the other details that are absolutely insane, the temple was torn in two, the earth, an earthquake split and shattered things, and it was all of this synchronized at the same time because I'm telling you that even the earth responded to Jesus' death. All creation cries out, and the, the moment Jesus breathes his last breath, it reverberates into creation responding. <laughs> I tell you, if you do not glorify him, even the rocks will cry out. There were seismic shifts responding in celebration to the Son of God, completing the work of the Father. Because it wasn't just a shift in the spirit, it was a shift in the natural, and you could not hold it back. No, he's not like Caesar. That's definitely the Son of God. 
Because I know the story that Caesar in his last moments was struggling to stay alive. But Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed one more time and he was out of here. Will you stand with me as we go right more, right into the song again? What do you do? What do you do with this? What do you do with this message? It demands a response. It requires you to, to either walk away and deny that this is the Son of God or come to the same conclusion that the, both the centurion and the criminal did. As a matter of fact, actually later in Acts, it says that many of the high priests began to follow Jesus. You know those same high priests that said he's blaspheming and deserves to die? So we have no idea until we are on the other side of this life, hopefully in eternity, to be able to see the massive crowd of those that were eyewitnesses that day that ultimately began to follow him. What do you do with a message like this? You do three things. You do what the criminal did. You turn to Jesus. You turn to him in your humility of recognizing that you not only have a need for God in your life, but that Jesus is, in fact, the one and only Son of God. Amen. He's it. That, is a, that was a divine moment for him to determine when his last breath would be. No one else can make that claim. The second is this, that you believe in who Jesus said he was. You believe that he was not just another person on the cross, but that was part of God's plan to, to bring his son into the world for the death of the sins of the world on his shoulders. Three days later, as we will celebrate next week with everybody, he conquered the grave because no one can take his life and he has the authority to pick it back up whenever he wants to. You believe in who Jesus said he was and what he did, and lastly, you begin to follow. You don't just believe and then go back to your old life. You begin to say, you know what? He is worthy not only of my praise, but he's worthy of me following his life, patterning, patterning, patterning my life after his, following his ways, following what the word of God says. So with every head bowed, every eye closed in this room, there might be a couple people that God is just working on your heart because as we started, if he would be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. And maybe you're here this morning and you walked away from Jesus at some point. You grew up in church or you've been around church for a long time, but you walked away from him. You doubted, you got discouraged, the cares of the world just kind of overwhelmed you and you said, I, just, I guess I'm not for this thing anymore. Or maybe you've never never put your faith in Jesus before. We're giving you that opportunity right now. And it's so simple. It's so simple. You know how simple it is? Turn to Jesus. Believe in who he says he is and begin to follow him. So if that's you today, that's a choice you want to make. So many of us have already made that choice. But if you made that choice, walked away, or you've never made that choice before, and you want today to be the day where you make that choice again, 
Will you lift your hand up? Not for me, but it is an act of faith to God saying, I'm, I'm, I'm it. That's what I want. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to pray, pray for you right now because God knows what's happening in your heart. <laughs> you know, in church, we, we often do like, a, okay, repeat after me. The thief didn't have the breath for that. Jesus knew what was going on in his heart. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, Father, I thank you for every single person street watching online or in our presence that is making the decision. Today, I want to follow Jesus. Today, I'm turning to Jesus. I believe who he is and what he did. And, and I'm making a commitment today to follow Jesus. God, you're the one that draw, drew them. You're the beginning and the end of our faith. So I pray right now that you would begin to fortify the decision that these amazing people in the room have made in their hearts. Strengthen them today. Encourage them today. Walk with them. Let them sense your presence supernaturally. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. We hope you were challenged, encouraged, and inspired as you listened to this teaching from God's Word. For more messages or information about our church, please go to www.redeemers.life.